This is John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast for April 1915. This podcast looks at life in World War I through the letters of John Adams, who was 23 when he joined up in September 1914. He served with the 9th Service Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers and was involved in many significant events in the Western Front, particularly Passchendaele. These are his words, read by his grandchildren and narrated by his great-grandchildren. In April 1915, John Adams was still preparing for war. He was still being trained in the barracks in County Down. But what exactly did that mean? What was the practice and reality of learning warfare in 1915 in Ireland? No one better than Heather Montgomery to talk about this, and this is a recording of an interview we had. My name's Mark Adams, and John Adams is my grandfather. In early 1915, John Adams, as part of the 9th Service Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers, was in Ireland training for warfare on the Western Front in France and Belgium. This meant trench warfare, with nearly 10,000 kilometres of trenches being dug on both sides. Soldiers were being trained in practice trenches before being deployed. To help us understand what that meant for John Adams, we are joined by Heather Montgomery from the School of Geography, Archaeology and Paleocology, Queen's University, Belfast where she is currently researching Ireland's First World War training camps, the practice and the reality. So welcome, Heather, and thank you for joining us. Hiya. Good. Now, first of all, how did you get into studying the First World War? What's your interest in that? I had a long-standing history interest in the First World War, and I first got involved with the, the actual archaeological element of it through the Somme Heritage Centre by travelling to France with them on the ex, uh, excavations of Fateful Wood and sort of hooked line and sinker, as they may sweat, <laughs> they say, and um, decided to actually venture into a more more formal education of it, basically. Mm-hmm. did my undergrad at Queen's, first class honours, then went into the world of archaeology, commercial world of archaeology, and excavated for numerous years. Then I went back and see my old supervisor to try and um, establish what I could do as far as a PhD is concerned, and he was very forthcoming, and therefore I ended up doing my PhD in this great sport, Queens. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, now there are several practice trenches in Ireland. Where would they be? Well, there are a lot of locations that had practice training grounds. They're scattered from one end of the country to the other. We have several up north that I'm investigating, such as Randallstown, Ballykinler, Greypoint Fort, McGilligan, etc. The others that would be more in the south of the country are there's a lot. They're a lot more widespread and a lot more sort of public locations. You would find mm-hmm. like a Stevens Green, sort of. Sorry, Stevens Green in Dublin. In Dublin, yeah, there's trench trench um, evidence there. So there are. They've never been investigated which is part and parcel of why I'm doing this research, that there's absolutely no investigation has been done on any of these trenches, uh, except to say that they have been acknowledged by a colleague of mine, Damien Shields. He has sort of talked about them at, at length and the fact that they need protection, etc. So uh, other locations I'm looking at are in Kilworth, which is at Lynch Camp in Kilworth. A location near to that is Butevant. Um, and another attachment to that is Balvanair. It's from one end of the country to the other. Um, you've got Finner in Donegal to Cork to Dublin and north of the country as well, which mm-hmm. I've already said. So 
So what survives as these trenches? It's a very good question. <laughs> in some instances, absolutely nothing. They've been completely and utterly obliterated and built over, I suppose is the best way of describing it. In other instances, such as Ballykindler and McGilligan and in Kilworth, they have survived remarkably well. And that is probably primarily due to the fact that they have remained on military training grounds ever since. So the camps that they were originally constructed within have remained within um, the military hands in some capacity or another. So they've been reused. A lot of circumstances they've been reused or sort of forgot about on the landscape. Mm -hmm. So you're getting quite strong representation of what was on the ground at the time in, in some of these locations. I know uh, the, my two brothers and myself, we went out to Belgium and France and we saw, uh, obviously there are tourist trenches that people can go to and see what's been happening, probably some of the ones you worked at as well. But there was also at the side of the road, you saw a V from mm. the embankment. Would that sort of evidence still be there? And the sort of, yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, the like of McGilligan, Ballykindler, Kilworth. Uh, is there a history of who created the trenches? Who decided we will start to dig holes in Ireland and train our men there? Essentially, there is. You, Kitchener's army, the outbreak of the First World War uh, was realised, and it's a, a very well known that the Kitchener wanted to raise his 100,000 men. The establishment of the, the divisions in England, etc., and Ireland raised three divisions, the 10th, the 16th, and the 36th divisions. The regiments then that were established, or sorry, the divisions that were established in Ireland, I'm sure you've, you you know the stories. They didn't call them PALS battalions here. They mm -hmm. were volunteer regiments. So the 16th and the 36th were the volunteer divisions. And the 16th primarily was made up of nationalists, um, of which we have the, the 6th Connaught Rangers that came from West Belfast, and they trained in Kilworth. It was part of the government's dictate, basically, that this was part, it was always part and parcel of a, a soldier's training was to how to survive in the field. So early days of the, the war, it wasn't necessarily anticipated that they would have had a, camp, a, a trench life ahead of them, but they still needed to know how to undergo protection in the field. So there would have been small trenches that dug. This would have been filtered down through the higher ranks of the, the war office to the, the, the Ministry of defence through to the, the different divisions and battalions etc and it, it was, it's in handbooks you know the, the, the legislation for, for digging um, a protective trench or a scrape trench as war progressed the, the trenches became an awful lot more uh, a permanent feature in the ground and it became something that there was an awful lot more time afforded then to trench activities and the exercise of actually constructing protective structures in the ground and trenching, as you've seen, mm -hmm. you know, on the Western Front, what remains of it, you can see the depth of them. They were big, they were well, you know, serious constructs. They weren't just the, the miniature scrape in the ground anymore. So they weren't. So they would have had notes that came back from the front, sort of, you know, uh, outlining efficiencies or deficiencies in, in activities that were, you know, carried out through basic training and brought through in the trips that were going out, recommendations for improvements, etc. So, so the trenches, as the war progressed, they became better and better at training the men to go out? Uh, well, better and better. They became more detailed. Better and better really only relies on how long they were given that opportunity to train them because that time changed and varied during the war, depending on the necessity for the recruits. 
as the, the heightened times of the battles, there was troops that were sent out. Like the, the, I think the original period for training was six months. That didn't always happen. There were some of the recruits that got seconded from, say, the 16th to the 10th uh, division who literally had only gone through their, their early training due to the necessity to back up troops that were lost in, in the early phases of the war. And this happened at other occasions too during the war. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, how would John Adams have been trained in these practice trenches? Um, well, I, he would have pro- more than likely have been given some sort of instruction in the, the, the regimental institute that would have been on, on camp. So uh, they'd have been given their basic training, which would have, they'd have been taught how to basically act as a soldier, be a soldier, respect, and etc. to their superiors, going through all the, the different breakdowns of the day, which is all very important because the guys coming in, they didn't have this sort of a structured life, more or less, you know, so they were given this element of training to, to structure their lives. Physical training was one of the biggest parts to start off with on the basis that a lot of them hadn't got a real... A, you know, a, a strong physique, which they needed, let alone some of them hadn't necessarily had, you know, well, didn't come from the best of backgrounds. A lot of them did, but some of them didn't, and they didn't necessarily have a good three square meals of a day, is the way I would re- regard it. So they were getting, they had to get better fed and muscled up, etc. So for training, they would have maybe had instruction, first of all, and then taught literally measurement by measurement how to dig these trenches. Start off with they would have just been shown how to, in the early phases of the war, they'd have been shown how to do a shallow scrape in the ground, enough protection to afford that they get sort of crouched behind this sort of, like a small parapet, I suppose, lying down to, to fire. And as, as war progressed, then it was a case that you had to dig these trenches. So there were measured specifications that came through from the war office as to the depths and the, the extremes, extents, etc., of, of a trench. And he would have been instructed in that in the field. And as we stop the interview there, we'll bring you the second part of this interview in the May 1915 episode next month. So come back for that. And thank you again to Heather for her generous time. D Company, 9th Battalion, Royal Irish Fusiliers, Newton Ards, 17th of April 1915. My dear mother, Just a line today. I got your parcel this morning. I was very thankful to you for what you sent. We are still confined to camp. I was just out once since we came back. There is nothing else that I want now, except if you could get me a box of Zack Buck sometime Jimmy would be in Newry. I hope you are keeping in good health as the weather is getting good again. We are all getting our photos taken at Battalion tomorrow. If I can, I will get one for you, though I may not be seen in it, but you will know that I am in it somewhere. Did Jimmy get the photos out of Newry yet where we were taken together? There is one for you, one for Mrs Moffat and Mrs Crozier, and there was to be one each sent to us. I think that is all now. Praying we will all be spared to meet again. I remain your loving son, John Adams. I thank you again for what you sent me. Perhaps you will hardly know now that this is. I am sending you this little book. Tell Annie to write to me now and again. It does one good to hear from home. Thank you for listening to John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast. To find out more about John Adams and his family, visit www.johnadams.org.uk forward slash letters. 
The history of the 9th Service Battalion, Royal Irish Fusiliers, during World War I is taken from the Blackers Boys. Visit them at www.9irishfusiliers.co.uk with the number 9. Podcast will be published a hundred years after the letters were written, so will be published nearly every month. This has been a Mark's Mess production.